Genesis chapter 11. Uh, The first 11 chapters in Genesis inform us of four major events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and then what happens at the Tower of Babel. That spans several thousand years. The last part of the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50, span about 400 years, and they revolve around four men, four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. They're important people in the book of Genesis, and the first question I would ask is, why is Joseph one of the four? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that makes sense. Jacob had 12 sons. God changed his name to Israel. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. Why, Why does the book end with Joseph? The Messiah does not come through Joseph. The Messiah comes through the tribe of Judah. So why Joseph? We remember that Joseph receives a a double blessing. And so his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, become uh, the tribe, his tribe, or the house of Joseph. We know that, but why would the book of Genesis end with Joseph? We remember that Moses is teaching the Jewish people why they are in the wilderness, explaining how they moved from Ur to Haran to Canaan, and then ended up in Egypt. And now here they are back on the doorsteps of Canaan. And so we have to remember that the book of Genesis is explaining to the people, the Jewish people, while they are in the wilderness, where they came from what their origins are. And so the first 11 chapters sweep through big pieces, big foundational pieces that ultimately bring them up to the place to where uh, Moses begins to explain to them where they came from, where the nation of Israel comes from. And so where we're at in the Bible right now in the book of Genesis is right at the end of Tower of Babel up to the beginning of Abraham. So we're in a very big transitional piece or place in the book. Uh, we are at that transition from Babel to, to Abraham. Now, uh, after the flood, i get this to work here, there we go. Yeah, after the flood, uh, God establishes his covenant with, uh, with the creation. We, we studied that after Noah and his family came off of the ark. There was that covenant that God made. Uh, and, and after that happens, and then after that happens, Moses begins a long, kind of drawn-out process of introducing the nation of Israel. And that followed over with uh, some, some, some other big pieces. It then folded first by identifying Israel's primary adversary, Israel's big, big problem, which is, of course is the Canaanites. Uh, now, by far, uh, other empires are much more powerful and cause Israel all kinds of heartache. We talked about that, how important Greece and Rome and Assyria and Babylon and Persia, Egypt, all of these other big empires played a very big part in the Bible and a big role in the relationship with Israel caused a lot of problems for Israel. So much of the Bible is is written around those empires. But as Moses is beginning to introduce the nation of Israel, he wants first to introduce the Canaanites. Because they're the adversary, they're the antagonist 
They're the nemesis. They are the ones who proved to be a uh, truly corrupting influence. And so we started studying this at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 9, after they got off the ark and the covenant. Uh, we started seeing uh, Moses begin this introduction to these people, uh, the, the descendants of Ham. And so uh, at a very early stage, Ham demonstrated a resentment towards God. And we remember that when Ham disrespected his father, Noah. And uh, this was uh, uh, followed by a prophecy that Noah made that marked the, uh, the bent disposition of Canaan. So Ham, of course, had a son named Canaan. And Noah made a prophecy about Canaan and his descendants that uh, overall in general, they were going to be uh, in rebellion to God. So uh, after, they, after they get off the ark, this, uh, there's this incident with Ham. Uh, Noah makes this prophecy about his descendants. And the people began to multiply. And uh, eventually enough people refused to submit to God's authority uh, at, in Mesopotamia so that he confused their languages, their one, their one language at Babel. This is what we looked at last week. And so this caused families and clans and nations to form and disperse according to their respective languages. And so chapter 10 explains to us uh, where they settled at, where all of these groups settled. Um, uh, it's kind of a little bit out of order. and We talked about that. So at the, at the end of 9, we're introduced to Ham. And then in, at the very beginning of chapter 11, we find out about the Tower of Babel. And then we go back to chapter 10 and we see where all of these different groups of people ended up going and filling the earth. So it's a little bit of out of order. Uh, but the reason is because you have to go from the ending of chapter 9 all the way to chapter 12 to see the complete full picture. Because what he's actually doing, what Moses is actually doing, is he's separating the table of nations that we saw in chapter 10 and uh, the specific line of Shem. And they're separated by what happens at the Tower of Babel. And so uh, that's what this is trying to express, this slide, is just to kind of show the, the, uh, the chronology or, of how Moses unveiled the origins of the nation of Israel. Uh, the, the, ta the table of nations is chapter 10, and that just explains where all of these different people groups ended up going after the languages was confused. So explains that with the Babel, and then he moves into the line of Shem. Shem is so important, that's one of Noah's three sons, because it is through Shem that Abraham descends. Now, why is that so important? So let's begin reading in, uh, in, uh, verse, um, in verse 10 of chapter 11. And this uh, is picking up um, after the Tower of Babel. Chapter 11, verse 10. These are the family records of Shem. Shem lived 100 years and fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. After he fathered Arpachshad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and he fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Arpachshad lived 403 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. 
Eber lived 34 years and he fathered Peleg. And after he fathered Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and he fathered Reu. After he fathered Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and he fathered Serug. And after he fathered Serug, Reu lived 207 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. So we notice here there were, there's a lot of other sons and daughters being born, but the text is not concerned with that. It's following the line of Shem to, to Abraham. Verse 22, Serug lived 30 years and he fathered Nahor. And after he fathered Nahor, Serug lived uh, 200 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and he fathered Terah. And after he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the native land in Ur of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. So Haran died uh, during his dad's lifetime. And uh, that's out of order, isn't it? So he died early. Uh, verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. So Sarai is Sarah. Um, uh, Milcah, says here, she was the daughter of Haran, Haran, and the father of both Milcah and Ishkah. Sarah was barren. She has no child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, who's Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So the remainder of chapter 11 here is a genealogy. Uh, chapter 5 is a genealogy that we looked at, and it goes from Adam to Noah. And so here is a chronology of Noah's son Shem to Abraham. Uh, there's a few things that are, uh, this is a fixed genealogy so that there's no gaps in the chronology. It tells you this guy was this old when he had this guy. And this guy was this old when he had this guy. And it goes all the way down, makes a, an unbroken chain of lineage to Abraham. Uh, much as the genealogy in chapter 5 does of Adam to Noah. But there are distinctive differences in, in this one. Because in this one, it, it has the absence of the phrase, and he died. Uh, we also notice that in this one, the lifespans dramatically decrease. So prior to the flood, people lived a lot longer. And as we see, as we follow this genealogy here, the ending of chapter 11, uh, people still live a long time, but steadily they decrease in ages. Terror ends up living only 205 years before he dies. So uh, when we compare, uh, this is a slide we looked at last Sunday, when we compare uh, chapter 11, which was the table of nations where people spread out after the Tower of Babel, when we compare uh, the table of nations in chapter 10 with chapter 11, uh, there's some things we want to observe. So when we're, when we're reading the table of nations in chapter 10, uh, we look at Shem. And it tells us of his sons, all of them. And it takes a couple of them and tells us uh, 
there's five, five sons, and four of the grandsons are actually named in chapter 10 through Aram. And then from Arpachshad comes Sheila and Eber, who had Peleg and Joktan. And so if you look at that there in chapter 10, this is what it tells us. It gives us the children that came from Joktan, the sons. But if you look at Peleg, there's nothing there, is there? That is very different from chapter 11, because in chapter 11, we pick up with Peleg, and we begin to follow the lineage from through Eber to Peleg, all the way down to Abraham. So this is very different. So uh, in this slide, you can see that. It follows a, a different line. So now we're, we're looking at, at Peleg's children. And that's because Abraham descends from Peleg through Shem. And why is that such a big deal? It's because in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, we're going to find out that this is the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is why this is so important. Now, uh, we come to the very end of the chapter and we're introduced, uh, the, the, the microscope begins to really narrow down in, in, onto Nahor and he has a son named Terah and Terah has three boys, Abram, uh, uh, Nahor and Haran, I said that wrong, didn't I? Um, uh, it begins to narrow in on these three sons and so uh, he Terah is Abraham's dad, and here he's, his name's just Abram. It's later changed to Abraham. Uh, and we're, we're told a little specific thing is that uh, Haran's dad, his uh, son is Lot. So if you know much about the New Testament or the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, you know that there's some, some things are going to unfold between Abraham and Lot. So this is that guy. We know that Nahor married one of Lot's sisters, Milcah. Uh, and we're told here that Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, cannot conceive. She doesn't have any kids. So this is a big deal. We're also going to find out later that she's a very pretty, very beautiful woman. Uh, she was a knockout. And she couldn't have any kids. And so uh, this is the situation that's introduced as we come to, to Abraham. Uh, at some point in Terah's life, the dad, Haran, dies. And he dies in Ur. Ur is in... Mesopotamia it would be modern-day Iraq. This is where this is all happening. And so uh, we find here at the end of this chapter, in verse 31, that Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and his daughter Sarah, daughter-in-law Sarah, and they left Ur for the land of Canaan. So they left Mesopotamia. But it doesn't really tell us why in chapter 11. It just tells us that they left. We're going to find out later. But we also find out that they, they didn't stay. They never made it to the land of Canaan. They ended up staying in a place called Haran. So this is very confusing. You've got uh, Terah having a son named Haran, and then they stop at a place called Haran. And uh, so it can be kind of confusing. But um, this, this is describing for us an exodus from Ur of the Chaldeans, the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, heading to the land of Canaan. And uh, the reason this is happening is because God told Abraham to go to the land of Canaan. He didn't tell Terah, he told Abraham. But it's not being told this. 
Um, uh, you might remember in the New Testament when, when Stephen was uh, brought, actually, he wasn't brought before the Sanhedrin, he was dragged before the Sanhedrin, and uh, he was to give a defense of his faith in Christ. And uh, this is all unfolds in Acts chapter 7. And when Stephen is testifying of his faith in Christ, uh, he's there being falsely accused of blasphemy. Uh, he begins his, his testimony by explaining God's call upon Abraham. And so it is from Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, that we actually find out what is happening behind the scenes that leads up to the opening of chapter 12 and the ending of chapter 11. It's, uh, it's very unique. And so I would encourage you to turn with me very quickly to Acts chapter 7. Keep your finger in, in Genesis 11, because uh, we'll come back to that in just a second. But Acts chapter 7, and, and just think of it, that for all of Israel's history, these dots were not connected biblically in Scripture. They might have been connected orally. There might have been an oral tradition that the Jews carried. But the, the jump from chapter 11 to chapter 12 is very unique. It's very interesting because it doesn't explain it. But Stephen does in this message. Uh, chapter 7 of Acts, beginning in verse 1, uh, the high priest, they've dragged him before the Sanhedrin. The high priest asks, is this true? Brothers and sisters, brothers and fathers, he said, listen. There wasn't any sisters there, just men. Brothers and fathers, he said, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. You see that? And he said to him, get out of your country and away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, Terah, God had him move to this land, Canaan, in which you now live. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised it as a possession to his descendants after him, even though at the time he was childless. God spoke in this way. So this is Abraham living in Mesopotamia with a wife who does, is unable to conceive. It says his descendants would be strangers in a foreign country and they would be enslaved and oppressed them for 400 years. What a prophecy. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves. And after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. This being so, he fathered Isaac and he circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac did the same with Jacob and Jacob with the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons that become the, four, the 12 tribes of, of uh, Israel. So if we go back to chapter 11, uh, and we just take a peek at the map here, that's the Arabian Desert. So you can probably see where Ur of the Chaldeans is. This would be in modern day Iraq. And uh, the shortest distance between those two points, Canaan, is you have to cross the Arabian Desert, which is impossible when you have herds and children. And so it pretty much forces you to go north and what they call that is the Fertile Crescent, uh, good ground, good land, that's all a, a, that uh, horseshoes around the Arabian Desert. And so this is what happened. So when he got up there to the tip top, uh, there's Haran, and he stays there. 
And so chapter 12 opens with God's call upon Abraham, but we're going to read that here in just a minute. We're just going to read a few verses of chapter 12, but it, and it, chapter 12 opens with this call of God, God's call upon Abraham to leave, to leave. But when he's doing this in chapter 12, verse 1, this is occurring while Abraham is in Haran. And we know this from Acts chapter 7. So God called him with them the Chaldeans. They got all the way up to the top. Abraham's dad and the whole family went with them. They got up there to the top and they stayed. And Terah died there. And so God is calling Abraham to pick it up and continue the journey to the land of Canaan. And that's what's going to start in Genesis chapter 12. We know from Acts chapter 7 that the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. Acts chapter 7 verse 2. And then in the fourth verse of chapter 7 of Acts, it says, And after his father died, God had him move to this land you now live in. And so this is the chronology. And so let's very quickly, let's read um, this call upon Abraham while he is in Haran in chapter 12, um, beginning uh, in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took with his he took with he took his wife Sarah, and his new his nephew Lot all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people he had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram, pa Abram passed through, uh, that's the piano, it turns off automatically. Um, verse six, Abram passed through the land of the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So, but the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give you this, I will give this land to your offspring. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he worshipped him. And then Abram journeyed on in stages to the Negev. Now, when we look at the map, you can see that he stopped at Haran and we don't know why. We don't know why they didn't continue on. We don't know why it's called Haran. It's too ancient. There's not enough information. It could possibly have been already named Haran after another person named Haran. It could have been a place they settled at and named it after their brother who had died. We don't know. We don't know if they got up there and uh, Abraham lost heart and just decided to disobey God and continue on his journey. It doesn't tell us anything like that, but that's something that some have suggested. We also don't know, but they could have got up there and, and his dad was just really unable to continue the journey. And so they stayed there. We don't know exactly. Uh, but we do know that Abraham's family was thoroughly pagan. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, it tells us that his dad worshipped other gods. And, uh, and Abraham's wife was barren. And so think of it. You've got Abraham who lived in, in the Ur of Chaldees. And he was a pagan. He worshipped other gods. And he was married to a woman that didn't have any kids and couldn't have any kids. So this is not exactly the 
couple that you choose to bring the Messiah. But that's why He chose them. Because it proves the, the glory of God. It exalts Him. It gives Him the glory. It shows His grace and mercy. And it's all something we should never miss as we consider what's happening here. You know, Abraham wasn't anybody special. You know, it's always, it's always nice to know somebody. You know, when, when, I, when I applied for, I lived in southwest Missouri, and I applied for a job in Cincinnati. And I didn't know anybody here, zero. So I didn't have anybody vouching for me. And so I cannot explain how I got the job outside of God. You know, it's all, we all know how important it is. You know, it's, it's almost, we're always, almost always introduced to the boss in some positive way by somebody. You know, it just almost always works that way. Um, but I'm personally contestifying that that's not what happened with me. I was hired, uh, you know, and, and you know in Cincinnati there's affirmative action and, and uh, uh, if they're going to hire a white guy, it's probably going to be a white Catholic from what the elder. And so I'm just some, some hillbilly in southwest Missouri and they hired me you know, here in Cincinnati. And so uh, I consider it a miracle, a very humbling miracle. And it reminds me of um, something I read. I put it here in my notes so I wouldn't forget, but there was a military deserter who was asked, who asked Abraham Lincoln to pardon him. And uh, the people who were bringing this issue to Abraham Lincoln were saying, you know, um, there's nobody can vouch for this guy. We can't tell you anything good about him, whether you should or shouldn't do this. He doesn't have any friends. And so the president pardoned him by saying, well, I will be his friend. Well, here um, in this, uh, this call of Abraham, he says, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. That's a lot to ask of somebody, to leave your place of comfort, uh, safety, and to leave, you know, family. Uh, that's a lot. That requires a commitment. You know, you really have to believe somebody uh, to, to pack it up and leave family. You really have to believe. And so that's why Abraham is in heaven right now, is because he believed that strongly. He believed God. He trusted Him. He took God at His word. And uh, I have one more, one more passage I'm going to ask you guys to turn to. It's in the book of Romans. And uh, is that the Colosseum up there? On the slide? Yeah, that neat. Uh, so hold your place here again and just go to Romans chapter 4. We're going to do one more passage and then I promise I won't make you jump around anymore. But this is really important because it gives us now, the whole chapter of, uh, of Romans, chapter 4, is about Abraham and how God called him and how he stepped out on thin air, you know, in faith. Uh, but I thought it would be really good for us to just read a little bit of that to see what Abraham did. You know, it wasn't because Abraham was a good guy and he was worshiping the one true God and he had a wife that was just rock and roll, ready to go, have a bunch of kids. and uh, It wasn't like that at all. Verse 9 of chapter 4 of Romans. Is, is this blessing that God has bestowed upon Abraham only for the circumcised then? Only for the Jewish people? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? That would be everybody else. For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith 
while still uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham's in heaven because he took God at his word. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, not only to those who are circumcised, but also to those who follow in the footsteps of the, of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. It's very important. Back to Genesis 12, and I promise I won't ask you to do that again. Uh, very important for us to remember that Abraham was called uh, as a sinner, as an idol worshiper, and that he had no prospects. And he simply is in heaven today because, and I, I've said this before, it's like, well, you die right now, and then boom, you're standing before the throne, and God the Father's asking, you know, why should you get to stay? What are you going to do? What are you going to say? You know, and I, I was talking to Lauren about this the other day. I said, well, the, the first thing I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be looking around for Jesus. I'm going to be trying to find him like right off the bat because he's the one that gets me in. I'm counting on him. I'm not going to start talking about, you know, hey, I was a pastor and I, you know, I, I'm not going to start in on any of that. You know, that's the key to being a believer is when you are putting your faith in him for your salvation. And so uh, this is what Abraham did. Now, uh, in, in closing, uh, if you believe that I'm actually closing, uh, we'll look here very briefly at the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, this is a covenant that we're going to talk about as we go through the book of Genesis because it is renewed a number of times in chapter 13, 15, 17, and 22. Uh, it is enlarged. Uh, but here are the basic components. He promises a place. He promises him land. And he's going to make a great nation out of his descendants that he's going to bless. And there will be a great name. And uh, you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And I will say that um, this has been true over the years with the different nations and empires and how they've treated Israel. And we know that the United States at the, is at times a better friend to Israel than at others, but we have remained an ally. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons we're still standing uh, this passage about blessing and cursing those who uh, your, your relationship with the nation of Israel you know that can be something in your heart how your heart is towards the nation of Israel how your heart is towards the Jewish people God sees that this is going to apply to you individually but it applies to the church as a whole you know this is a this part of the covenant in my opinion seems to uh, be something a large percentage of the church has ignored over the years and uh, this is a big mistake we should be God's people's friend. We should uh, remember Paul in, in uh, Romans 9, 10, 11. He talks about not becoming arrogant towards the Jews just because they aren't in belief right now because we've been grafted in because of them, through them. Uh, very important. And then finally it says, all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is very interesting because this is the key to understanding uh, the Christian life. This very last phrase there. That is the key. You know, God uh, tells the Jewish people to enter the land of Canaan and, and wipe them out, kill them all. Don't leave any of them standing. They've all got to go. 
He tells the Jewish people not to marry the Gentiles. He tells them that through you, all the people on earth will be blessed. So on the surface, that could look like God is giving mixed signals. Um, uh, it could look like this is out of, uh, that this is a contradiction. But each one of those components I just talked about have to be looked at within their own context. Last Sunday, we made some brief observations about what happened when the languages were confused. This forced people to uh, move into groups. You just you had to gravitate towards people that you could communicate with. So automatically, there is a knife, a scalpel that is slicing apart different groups of people, and it's separating them. And when he did that, there goes the people that knew how to smelt iron. There goes the architect. Wait a minute. He's going over there. And so collective knowledge was divided among these groups. And we talked about how groups have personal interests that at times come into conflict with each other. This caused problems, doesn't it? These groups would intermarry and that would perpetuate distinctive characteristics. Think of what was happening. Not only did people speak differently, not only did people have different interests that was, in, that was inherently connected to their group, but people began to look differently too. And all of these things feed into uh, distrust and misunderstanding, racism, war, all of these things as a result of the Tower of Babel. And last week we also recognized that there's only really one biblical reason for not getting along with someone, and that's because of their behavior. Not because they speak differently or look differently, uh, not what group, family, or clan, or nation they come from. Not getting along with someone, or not having fellowship with someone, has to do with their behavior. But it never ever means that we don't love them. You know, think about uh, culture in general. Uh, let's just compare culture in America with culture, say, in, in Russia. Um, we share so many values. We are not so different from them at all. We share so much. We, we all want to be healthy. We want to, be in, to love. We want to be loved. We want to have families and children. We want to have fun, we want to have safety, prosperity. We want to laugh. Russians and Americans both have national pride. There are so many things about our culture that we share. But there are distinctives in their culture and distinctives in our culture. And so how you look at the distinctives there of their culture uh, becomes the key of where your heart is because you can look on them positively or you can look on them negatively. A Christian should look on them in a positive way. And learn, do your best to, to look at them with understanding and love to appreciate the differences instead of disliking them simply because there are differences. Now, we know that some cultures have things that are inherently bad, like, uh, like cannibals. <laughs> you know, we may not, you know, that might not be the greatest. But uh, it, it boils down to America. You know, just think about America. We have one culture here. We have one, one American culture. And we all share 
many, many things together as Americans. Uh, many of the values that the Russians have, or the people that live in the Sudan or anywhere. Um, but in America, we have all of these shared values. But even in America, there are different groups, subgroups in the culture. You know, there's American Indians, there's black and white and Asian, there's people from China, there's people from Japan, um, uh, there's people from all over the world uh, here in the United States. And each one of these groups has their own special interests, don't they? And while they have their special interests, they still have these common values. And if you took one of these subgroups and you looked at them, oh, there's all the white people, and you think, I see what some white people do, so I don't like all white people. And that's a mistake, isn't it? Because again, we're moving down to behavior of the individual. Sometimes groups of people within a culture have very bad behavior, things that they believe in or doing that you have to completely patently reject. But we don't want to make the mistake of throwing out the whole thing together. We want to learn to appreciate the differences. And even when we find somebody in, a, in, a, in, a, in America, as an example, in a certain group, and even a bad apple in that group, even then, we're supposed to approach that person with love and understanding. That's a Christian's heart. Love and understanding of every single person. And so when God told the, the Jewish people to remove the Canaanites and to not marry Gentiles, He did that for very specific reasons. It has nothing to do with hating them, you see. To approach all people with love and understanding recognizes that even though there may be differences, sometimes bad differences, we are all created in God's image. We are all related to each other as brothers and sisters through Adam. And that we are all sinners. We are all in the same boat. This should be something very important for us to remember because when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, we also see the mandate that God has given His church. This is key. This is a key to properly understanding the nature of the Abrahamic covenant that all people on earth will be blessed through you. And it is also the key to understanding the mandate that Jesus gave to His church. So let's pray.